This morning, though, as I said, we're coming to the the end of this first segment of church history that we put in this class, uh, the history of the church from 50 to 500 A.D. Uh, And this is session 11, the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, We're following up what we talked about last week. We talked about the doctrine of Christ last week. And just like the first two ecumenical councils, the, the ecumenical, that's all of the church being brought together, uh, the first two councils were uh, Nicaea and uh, Constantinople, and those uh, those uh, both revolved around the same issue. Remember, they were both about Arianism and the church's affirming of the deity of Christ. You had it affirmed in the first council, but it needed to be reaffirmed in the second council just because they were still people, the church was struggling with it. And it became a little clearer even in the second council than it had in the first. Well, the third and fourth ecumenical councils, and that is councils called by the emperor in God's providence, the Lord Jesus and the emperor to call these councils, were about another issue, but the same issue also. Whereas the first had been about the deity of the first two were about the deity of Christ. The next two are about the natures of Christ or the person of Christ, uh, particularly how the natures of Christ relate. The first established his deity, first to establish his deity, that the church saw that the scriptures teach that and it had always believed that. These two councils deal with the issue of how, if he's fully God, what does that mean about his person? How, how does God and man come together. And so those are the next two councils, which were Ephesus is the third council in 431, which we talked about last time. And then the fourth ecumenical council, just 20 years later, is the council of Chalcedon, 451. That's the main focus we're going to get back to. And so, but before we get into that, I've got to deal with something that is a, a, there's a towering figure in church history who I want to touch on briefly, though he is not really involved directly so much in these debates. Just in God's providence, he's dealing with other issues. He does write about them, but he's not a main player. And uh, that is, we're going to talk about Augustine of Hippo, which is the uh, f- the fourth blank down there. Uh, because there there was a, 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 he's a contemporary of what's going on. He died in 430 A.D., uh, and he was writing. He's the most prolific writer in all of church history. Augustine wrote like crazy. And, and, and he was really the foundation in many ways for the Reformers. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli draw so much on Augustine. The Puritans draw so much on Augustine. He he dealt with issues that were of profound significance. So this is going on at the same time the Christological debate is going on, okay? Uh, and w- the first blank there, uh, there's this, uh, I said uh, it's a contemporaneous debate. While Christology is being debated, there's another debate that's important, and it's between Pelagius of Britannia, Britain, Pelagius out of Britain, basically Ireland, modern-day Ireland, and Pelagius, you may have heard Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism. Pelagius has a defective view of sin 
and a defective view of salvation. Those are the next two blanks. He, he thinks sin is a small thing. Uh, he just has a very worldly, unbiblical mindset. It's very appealing, though. Um, seems logical, rational. That's so often the, the, the most effective heretics, I say the most destructive heretics, are those that really tap into kind of the spirit of the age, to the appeal, to the flesh. And so Pelagius has a really low view of sin. He sees sin not as something inherent in man, not like it, the Bible describes it, rebellion, uh, depravity. He doesn't see any of that. He sees sin really as just bad habits that need to be corrected. And salvation is something that is humanly possible. He talks, he uses the language of Scripture, but he, he's really, it's a very man-centered, works-based salvation that he's offering. And he's an effective communicator, like so many of the great heretics were. He's an appealing, powerful speaker. He comes down from Britain, makes his base in Jerusalem, uh, and he is gaining a following. But one of the, the men God raises up to deal directly with him is Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. Sometimes I say it either way. Um, but Augustine of Hippo. Hippos in North Africa, the wonderful story of Augustine's salvation experience, how God brought him to faith out of a life of sin and debauchery. He was a, um, he was a, uh, a very well-educated man. Uh, in fact, one of the, the hindrances to him becoming a Christian, I always thought this was interesting, one of the hindrances to him becoming a Christian that was overcome, of course, was he could not believe that God gave the scripture in Koine Greek. This was one of the things Augustine stumbled over. Augustine, being a learned man, you know, raised in uh, learning Latin and Greek, because you've got to be a, a learned man in that day. You've got to read all that's coming out of the Latin. That's the language of Rome. Greece, the language of, you know, the, the great philosophers and all of the great Greek writings. And so he's he's studied in classical Greek. Classical Greek is a beautiful, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's, this is sort of like going from the King's English. You know, here you hear uh, someone that's very skilled in, in English with an English accent. Doesn't it just, They sound smarter because they have an accent, don't they? We sound dumber because we have a Southern American accent. Some of us have a Southern American accent. Just na naturally people kind of think, oh, you're Okay, they have a lower, the, the bar sets the bar lower, which actually is pretty good. We set the bar low, and then we show that we're above the bar, maybe, hopefully, right? But, but anyway, no, but seriously, but the, um, the, the, the idea of the British language, uh, the English language as kind of the king's language, that the way it's meant to be spoken, and then think of, like, you know, okay, Southern English or almost Appalachian English, something very common. Koine Greek was, it was that kind of a, a distance between classical Greek and Koine Greek. And in fact, the word Koine, K-O-I-N-E, that's the, 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 the language the New Testament is written in, Koine Greek. We get our English word coin from that, C-O-I-N, and it's that which is common. That's the, what the word Koine means, common. Uh, vulgar. Now, we, we change the way we understand the word vulgar. We, when we say here the word vulgar, we think of a bad word. 
But really, the word vulgar means common. Okay? It's what everybody says. That's, that's what the original meaning was. Uh, and so Koine Greek was the Greek language that the common man spoke. It wasn't the Greek language that the literary scholars studied in. You see that? And he thought if God was going to speak, he would speak in the most beautiful, eloquent, lofty language. And this was him as an unconverted man, a proud man, a learned man, and he thought that. He was like, God wouldn't have spoken in that crass language, Koine Greek. Anyway, of course, what does that say about God? He, he comes and speaks to the common man. I mean, think about it. He, who was the first people he invited to know about Jesus coming into the world? Shepherds, right? So the Lord comes to those whom the world does not esteem, God esteems. And Koine Greek, he makes his word completely accessible. Because Koine could be read by the scholars and the common man. So anyway... That's, that's another thing about Augustine. So uh, he comes to salvation, and of course, then, then he embraces the glory of God, the greatness of God. He comes to have a... Augustine is known for having a right view of sin and human inability. I almost You could say depravity, but I, I really think the focus here with Pelagius is human inability, human helplessness. His view of sin is a biblical view of sin, and in response to Pelagius, he even, you know, studying the Scriptures becomes clear and expounding it that the Bible shows man is dead in trespasses and sins, utterly incapable of saving himself. And so Augustine makes this his, uh, you know, big part of what he writes and reflects on. And so he gives us great teaching on the reality of sin and human depravity. His, he really helps fashion uh, our understanding of original sin, that sin is passed on the way it is, and that original sin brings original guilt. We have guilt because we're, we're connected to Adam. We have corruption because we're connected to Adam. Uh, you know, we have depravity. And so Augustine also gives a right view of salvation and grace. Whereas the defective view of sin and salvation by Pelagius is corrected by Augustine's right view of sin and human inability and salvation. And he has a theology of grace that the Bible has. The astonishing contribution of Augustine, as I said, he's the most prolific writer in all church history, a dominant influence on the Reformers. And he wrote a lot about predestination. This is where... Uh, Luther, uh, Luther was uh, an Augustinian monk, which is really interesting. There's, there, I forget how many orders of monks there were at the time Luther was a monk. Four or five, Benedictine, Augustinian, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what the others are off the top of my head. But anyway, but he was an Augustinian monk. And one of the things about the Augustinian monasteries were they spent more time in the Bible, in the tradition of Augustine. Even though the Catholic Church was still all messed up and they were messed up, basically the Augustinian monasteries were messed up too. They were less messed up because they were in the Bible. It's hard to stay that messed up if you stay in the Bible. And so Luther, Luther's uh, mentor, von Staupitz, apparently was born again, 
help Luther to get into the Scriptures. Luther, studying the Bible, gets saved. But he was an Augustinian monk. Okay, so uh, another key work that Augustine wrote is the City of God, amazingly relevant work for our day. Augustine was writing, as we said, he died in 430. He dies with Rome about to be sacked again by the barbarians. And so he is writing in the, in, you know, in the midst of a time of great cultural national upheaval. The, the great system of Rome is crumbling, and Christianity's kind of gotten latched to that. Remember when Constantine becomes a believer, and remember he doesn't, he doesn't make everybody a Christian, contrary to common uh, belief. He legalizes Christianity, and then you have some later emperors that try to enforce it on people. But the idea is Christianity is now with the emperor. And so even like we're talking about these, these ecumenical councils are called by the Roman emperor of all people. So there is this blending of church and state. Well, Augustine writing at the time he writes, I said, tremendous political, social, uh, uh, military upheaval. Uh, he writes the city of God. And in the book, The City of God... He basically makes the point that the people of God are not to be attached to the city of man. City of man, the city of God. The governments of this world, the kingdom of Christ. And he's making a, a really well thought out argument. There are many things he writes that become foundational in Western civilization. I mean, we are heirs of so much of what he did. For instance, just war. The concept of the just war that people still debate philosophically goes back to his early writings on this concept. How can a Christian, you know, should a Christian fight in a war when he's in a country that's at war? And basically his answer was yes. Uh, the right of self-defense. He, he writes on that from a Christian standpoint, interacting with the Scriptures. So tremendous man of God. Now, he also had some areas where he was a little flaky. And, and that's why the Catholics looked to him, too. Like He wrote about this, of the sacraments and stuff. He got a little wonky on some of these things. And, and that's where, we, as we look back at church history, we have to, we have to walk with some um, humility. Uh, you know, I, I really like a term C.S. Lewis coined, chronological snobbery. He says that we tend to look back at previous eras and judge them in view of what we know in the present, and we look down on them as being just so backward and foolish and stupid. But he said if, if they could look at us, they would be doing the same thing. You morons in the future. The things we don't see that they saw with great clarity. In fact, I think, honestly, the way that sin is, even though we're becoming technologically more uh, advanced, we're becoming intellectually more vapid and empty. We're dumber than they were 300 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 3,000, 5,000 years ago, because sin actually is also cr continuing to corrupt. If you just think about this, you know, uh, Adam, and, Adam and Eve had boys and girls, and their boys and girls married each other. Had to. And there was no problem with that. Uh, Abraham, when he said, Sarai is my sister, 
wasn't a whole lie. It was just a half lie because she was his half-sister. Half-sister. He married his half-sister. And their kids were normal. And it's because sin is making the gene pool more and more perverted and messed up over time. People used to marry their first cousins, and it wasn't a problem. Now it is. It's because sin is progressive and degenerate. It's becoming more and more degenerate. And there's a sense in which I think the human mind is doing the same thing. It's an ironic, weird thing because we have technology coming at a level, but it's not because we are smarter and more brilliant. In fact, just think about things like this. It, we're going to have, you know, when we have a presidential election, we have elections, we, we have um, debates. The debates of 2020, 2012, 2000, compared to something like they had in the 1860s, 1850s, 1840s, Lincoln-Douglas debates, we are morons comparatively. I said that I, I'm a moron compared to the people. They would listen to, like Lincoln gets up and he speaks for one hour. Then Douglas gets up, and it may have been longer, maybe 90 minutes, but I'm just I'm not the one to overestimate. Then Douglas gets up and speaks for you know 45 minutes rebutting him. Now Douglas speaks for an hour. Now Lincoln speaks for 45 minutes rebutting him. We're at three and a half hours, and everybody's sitting out there intelligently listening to that. Their attention spans were a whole lot better than ours. The ability to reason and listen to a rational argument. You see what I'm saying? I don't know why I got off on this, but I'm just saying that the chronological snobbery is, is just really ridiculous. Because every generation has areas of blind spots and weaknesses and things that they didn't see correctly, of course. But it's, it's true of us as well. And I, what I'm saying is, on average, I would say we're probably going to come out worse on judging most generations. If you put, all, put it all on a balance sheet, we're right on this and this and this and this, but we're wrong on this and this and this and this and this and this and this. I mean, think about it. We're aborting babies in America. What, what, what kind of insanity, right? So anyway, all right, so chronological snobbery makes no sense. So when you look at Augustine... You need to do it with some, some grace. I mean, clearly he was saved. He just had some areas he's still working through. Um, and, and so anyway. All right, now that's all just kind of introduction to contemporaneous debate. Back to the ongoing Christological confusion. Now we're back to the debate on Christology. That is the doctrine of Christ. And we talked about last time Eutychianism, uh, that's Eutyches, monophysitism, that is that there's only really one nature. Remember, Eutyches uh, said that the deity of Christ swallowed up the humanity of Christ. In fact, I found it actually, the, the, uh, I mentioned last week, drop of honey. His actual metaphor was a drop of wine in an ocean. The humanity of Christ was the drop of wine. The ocean is his deity. So that functionally, there's no, there's no validity really to even talking about the humanity of Christ. This was an overreaction uh, to Arianism and an overstatement of the importance of his deity. It wasn't overstating the reality of his deity, but it was overstating the, the relationship of it so much that it diminished his humanity. 
So Eutyches had said that Nestorianism was messed up because it had two natures, but not, but in two different, really two different people in one body, as it were. And Nestorius really saw God couldn't really be connected to man anyway, so he de-emphasized the humanity of Christ too was the, the functional result. So that these two guys and their followers basically ended up talking less and less and less about the cross because the cross is irrelevant. Because the humanity of Christ is irrelevant. It, it was really odd that they this happened, but this is this is what had happened. And so we saw that in 431, uh, you know, the 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 third ecumenical council of Ephesus rejected uh these Nestorianism and Eutychianism. Uh, and every other Apollinarianism had been rejected already, but those different wrong views of the that diminished the humanity of Christ. Now, I want to say a word about how Pelagianism relates to these Christological heresies. It is interesting that it comes up at the same time, and I think it did because the the what it was happening in this when they got off on overemphasizing deity de-emphasizing humanity, it did take their focus off of the cross. It took their focus off of, they weren't listening to the Bible very well. And so they, it started affecting the way they saw salvation. I mean, think about that. If you take your focus off the cross, what is salvation? I mean, we know that if you keep your focus on the cross, what salvation is, is a person knows he's completely helpless, unable to save himself, hopelessly lost, under the wrath of God. The only way he could be saved is for God to become man and to die in his place on the cross. And the death of Christ, the blood of Christ spilled out for us is what delivers us. That's what the wrath of God was on the Son. He's the propitiation. He takes the wrath out of the way. You know, Jesus' uh, uh, parable of the, the, the Pharisee and the publican, remember? Uh, he says this, Luke tells us in his commentary right before that, he says, Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves. And a certain man went to pray. It's Pharisee, and he prayed and said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. I'm not like swindlers or uh, adulterers or like even this tax collector. But I, I tithe twice a week. I give, I mean, I tithe, I tithe everything. I fast twice a week. Uh, you know, thank you, Lord, that I'm not, that I'm like this. He did say thank you. So he was thanking God that he was like this, but it was all his resume, right? This is, look who I am. And he said, another man, the tax collector, and the Pharisee didn't say it out loud, by the way. He says in his heart, he said these things. He wasn't saying, thank you, that I'm not like that guy over there. He wasn't that, you know, ridiculous. So the guy heard him say that. No, he didn't. He said it in his heart. But still, how, what a wicked heart. The, the tax collector says, have mercy on me. He won't look, at, he won't look up. He can't even look his, bring his eyes to heaven. He beats his chest, which is a, a sign of... Of, of, of self-loathing. You see, he sees the problem is me. He beats his breast and he says, have mercy on me, the sinner. 
And when you look at the, the Greek, underlying that, and if you have a good Bible that has a footnote there, you'll have a footnote. Sometimes it'll say, it'll translate it, have mercy on me, the sinner. But when you look at the footnote, it says that word literally means be propitious toward me, the sinner. Or be propitiated toward me, the sinner. That's the actual Greek word. What does that mean? It means look at the sacrifice and accept me. Look at the sacrifice, and on the basis of the sacrifice, accept me, the wicked sinner. Jesus said, that man went to his house justified. That's salvation. And so when you take the focus off of the cross, off of the need for the sacrifice, off the fact that Christ is a sacrifice, well, salvation is kind of a small thing. just need a little boost up, a little help to reform your life. So Pelagianism played, you know grew in the soil of this diminished emphasis on the cross. Does that make sense? The the circumstances were right for both of those things to happen at the same time. Okay, with that said now, let's look at the debate again. The debate continues after the Council of Ephesus in 431. An interesting thing, they're, they're, they're wrestling with this. A couple of the key guys that were leaders... Uh, of both sides of the issue, even after uh, Ephesus, there's still a lot of controversy. There's two synods uh, in 448-449. The first is the Senate of Constantinople, and the second is the Senate of Ephesus again. Now, all of these cities are in Asia Minor. That is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Chalcedon is basically suburban Constantinople. Uh, Ephesus, all of these are in western Turkey. This is where all, this, this is where all the uh, uh, councils happen. But the Synod of Constantinople basically uh, was called in 448, and the Archbishop of Constantinople, Flavian, you know, rejected again Nestorianism and rejected. Uh, uh, Eutyches, denounced Eutyches particularly, Eutychian monophysitism again. And it looked like that had carried the day, except that the, uh, the other side had their own council the very next year in Ephesus. And they gathered 130 bishops together, and then it was really a weird, this council is called the Robber Council by church historians. Uh, not Without going into too much detail, essentially uh, the pro-Eutychian faction, those that were really upset about how Eutyches had been treated and the stories had been treated, you know, they were wanting, these were the guys that were saying, hey, uh, if we all love each other, we can accept each other. It's not a big deal. Don't let doctrine divide. Let's all be together. And they were really mad that that they were rejecting false doctrine. Uh, And so, they basically have their own synod, and this guy that Dioscorus of Alexandria was a real character. He's the one who organized this second synod, and he had friends in the imperial court, not the emperor himself, but friends in the imperial court that sent, sent soldiers to the, to the gathering, and he basically kind of threatened the people there, so they voted with him to say Eutyches is reinstated. He like shows up, hey, we're going to vote in just a minute. And now all of the armed guys come in and they're like watching you vote, you know, or you're going to lift your hand. And 
And, and then they go, he goes from there and kills Flavian, who was not at the council. This guy, I mean, it's just really ugly what happens, you know, when in the church, when issues of doctrine come up like this, and you see Satan just rear his head in such an awful way. So that, this is 448, 449. So things are now out of control. Even though Ephesus had seemingly decided it, it hasn't been decided. So the Council of Chalcedon is called in 451 by the emperor, Marcion. This is a different Marcion. This is M-A-R-C-I-A-N, not the Marcion of the 2nd century, the heretic. This is the Roman emperor Marcion calls the synod, I mean the, the, the council, and it's called in Chalcedon in the year 451 A.D., and is attended by 520 bishops. So this is, a, this is again, and, and the spirit of the ecumenical councils was you gathered the whole church together and they all weighed in on a theological issue like this. And so the robber council was only 130 of them, and those guys were coerced, so it, didn't, it wasn't a council. It was just this synod, okay? So this is a true council uh, ecumenical council, all of the believing churches, professing churches, send um, representatives, or virtually all, 520 bishops. And they deal with the issue is the hypostatic union. That is a uh, you know, technical term, but it's a very important term. It comes the hypostatic. That that adjective comes from the 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 um, Greek noun hypostasis or hypostasis. Hypostasis denotes an actual concrete existence. A hypostasis is an actual concrete existence, and to say the hypostatic union is used to describe the reality that Christ is perfect deity and perfect humanity in one concrete person. One individual personhood, two distinct natures. This is what the hypostatic union is. Um, So two natures in one hypostasis, one concrete personhood, individual personhood. So it's not like Nestorius said, God and man like schizophrenic. It's not like Eutyches said, God and man, so that man becomes irrelevant. It's God and man, fully God, fully man, in one person. This is the best understanding of the Bible. Remember, what we're getting at is they were really just, they, they're using words. And sometimes you'll read some stuff online where people are like bringing up, hey, the word hypostatic. Doesn't I mean the word hypostasis doesn't occur in the New Testament, but it, not in this way. You don't have something that says that Jesus is uh, fully man, fully God in one hypostasis. You don't have that. The word the Trinity doesn't occur in the Bible. So people talk about this and they they make hay out of this kind of thing, uh, you know, and then sound really uh, sophisticated and like well, why are these backward. Uh, Christians, you know, you, 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 you don't don't go go to the text. This is actually the way Ari, the Arians operated too. Go to the text, and they would try to get people in the text, but they would they would ignore a lot of the other texts. 
Look at this text. Look at this text. Look at this text. Just look at this text. You see what? This is why we say this. What about the other text? So you have to bring all the text together and formulate a doctrine. And so sometimes you need words outside of Scripture to help you capture what the whole of Scripture is saying. Uh, you know, we, 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 we summarize what the Bible is saying from all the different passages. And hypostatic union is a, um, a, an amazing re- reality that is clearly the teaching of the Bible. Because what we see in the Bible... Uh, in fact, we'll jump on down to the verses at the bottom, and then we'll come back and look at this. Let's look at the key text. Down, you see the, down at the bottom, Colossians 2.9. These are just a couple. I mean, we could spend hours looking at this subject and, and it, the beauty of it, but it's beyond our uh, ability to do that right now. Colossians 2.9. It's interesting. He says um, in verse 8, actually, you look at the... Uh, Well, actually, I, I think about this. They, James and uh, Fielding taught Colossians last year or early in the year, first last time. And um, if you look back at what what we what we learned then, that there. Look at verse four, chapter two, verse four. It says, first of all, in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's verse 3. This is 2, 3. 2, 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. There are people trying to delude you with persuasive arguments. This is something that happens in the church. People come with persuasive arguments with a motive or intent of deluding you. And I don't want you to be deluded because... Everything is in Christ. That's what he's saying. Skipping on down uh, to verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it in the church that nobody takes you captive. They're going to come, and they're going to come with the elementary principles of the world. They're going to come with... uh, the, the traditions of men, and through deception, they're going to try to lead you away from Christ. This is what's going to happen, Paul said. This is exactly what they're dealing with at Chalcedon. Look what he says next. The reason, don't let him take you captive through philosophy, empty deception, for in him, chapter 2, verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What's the text say? The text says that all the fullness of deity was in Christ and is in Christ now. In His humanity, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is homoousios. Remember uh, the the earlier council? That was the the, the phrase that they used way back when they were dealing with the first two councils. That Jesus is fully God. He is homoousios. He's of the same substance as the Father. Okay? Same substance as the Father. Now look at, turn over a few books to Hebrews. We looked at this last week, but it's just such an important passage. I want us to go back to it again. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It's explaining the incarnation. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he also likewise partook of the same. Since they're in flesh and blood, he partook of flesh and blood. 
Why? So that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Why did Jesus become full? Why did Jesus become man? So that he could save sinners like us. He had to become man to save us. God had to come down to save us. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he, made, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. There it is. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. And when you look, I think we looked at chapter 5 last time where it talks about, yeah, the, uh, uh, the days, verse 7, chapter 5, 7, the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. That is, a, that is, Christ lived as true man. He's fully man. He has a human soul. He has a human body. He is everything that we are in our humanity. He is homoousios with us. This is what's being clarified at Chalcedon. It was, it was iterated at, at Ephesus, and it's being hammered home at Chalcedon. They're, they're knocking this heresy out of the church. I mean, Satan's going to keep bringing it back. But they're definitively saying the Bible teaches this clearly. And listen to the, look at the beauty of this formula. This is the Chalcedonian formula. This is what they adopted, this language. Following then the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son. He's not two persons. He's not some schizophrenic reality. No, he's, He is one and the same Son. The self-same, that is the, who we're talking about, perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood. That is complete. doesn't mean perfect like... I mean, his, he, he made his manhood... I mean, his manhood never was anything less than perfection in the sense of he never sinned. But he's not meaning perfect manhood in some kind of uh, a way that, 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 you know, it couldn't be touched or anything. You know, he, it means true, full manhood. This is what the idea of that word perfect means here. It's complete manhood. In fact, the Greek word telos that's normally translated perfect in our Bibles often means fullness or maturity. You know, we're, going to, we're to be perfect. Well, you're to be mature. You're to be grown up fully. And so he had full manhood, full deity. The self-same homoous. So then he goes on to say, uh, the self-same of a rational soul and body, homoousios, that is same substance. Remember, homo-same, usios substance. Homoousios with the Father according to the Godhead. The self-same homoousios with us according to the manhood. Like us in all things, apart from sin. Before the ages begotten of the Father as to the Godhead, but in the last days the selfsame for us and for our salvation, born of Mary the Virgin, Theotokos, that is, she's the bearer of God, remember, as to the manhood. And remember we talked about that, that the Catholics get a little crazy on that and all of that, but literally when they, when they coined this term, they were right in what they said. Biblically, what it means is that when, when Jesus was, con- was conceived in the womb, the moment of conception, Mary bore God in her womb. That's just the reality. 
You see, I've got to be wary of overreacting because of sensitivities from like being, if you grew up Catholic. Yeah, they mess it up, but don't, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. This is saying she, at the moment of conception, God was in her womb. The fullness of God was in her womb. How can that be? I don't know, but it's, it's reality. Because that's what the Bible teaches. And so that's why they're, they're hammering home these things because they're driving out error. You can't, you can't hold on to these faulty views of Jesus. If you don't get Jesus right, you don't end up in heaven. That's what John said. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus came in the flesh. He's dealing with one particular heresy back then, docetism, that acted like Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. Jesus wasn't fully man, you see. And that means it's the spirit of Antichrist, John said. This is not a small thing. So they hammer this home. But the beauty of the language, the precision of the language. One and the same Christ. Though there are two natures, fully human, fully divine. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. All those titles for one person, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. They're, they're putting up guardrails around what the Bible says. They're saying, listen, you can know from the Scriptures that this, they, this stay within these guardrails. Yes, a mystery. You can't fully understand it, but just don't get outside of these guardrails because the Bible sets the guardrails. And so... Looking on down, what I, I kind of summarized that below. Homoousios, the, the bullet points, we'll come back to the text in a minute. Homoousios equals same substance. Sometimes you'll see in this, I put homoousios in there, but sometimes you'll see consubstantial or coessential. Those are two ways of saying the same thing, same substance. Coessential, that means it means of the same essence. Same essence, substance, right? Consubstantial, with the same substance. So, in two natures, in one person. So, I, I've taken those adverbs they use, two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and separately, and turned them into prepositional phrases. Two natures in one person, and these two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Without confusion means there's no blending in the sense of they become somehow blended together so that they're something new and not the same, not as they were before. Like you mix, and this is kind of like the, uh, the Greek view of, 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 you know, Hercules, son of an earthly woman and Zeus. Is that right? Uh, anyway, he's a son of a god, and, a, and, a, and a, a human being, and therefore he's a half God, half man kind of thing. He's a man that has divine-like powers. Well, that's not what the, this is not what we're talking about. That's not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes a person who is at the same time fully God and at the same time fully man. And so there was no confusion of the natures. 
And then adding to that, there was no change. There's no change to the humanity, no change to the deity. He didn't cease to become God the way He was before when He became man. His deity was unchanged, is unchanged. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, without change, without division. That is, the two natures come together and there's not a division or separation. It's not like there's two different people. That's Nestorianism they're hitting at, you see? No, that, that doesn't re- reflect what the Bible says. When we see Jesus on the pages of Scripture, we see one person. We see one Christ, one Son, who is at the same time God and man. So it, it, it's this, this is where <clears throat> sometimes people... You know, sometimes people get in their ivory towers and they, they think too theoretically about things. And, and you, you know, we say things like they're too heavenly minded to be an earthly good and they're in their ivory tower. And I think this does happen, especially uh, it does happen because of even the way I was talking to somebody the other day uh, who we were talking about doctoral studies. And he was sharing with me when he got his doctorate at Chris Brackett the other night. Uh, he was here on Wednesday night teaching us about sharing with us about his ministry, minister uh, to Croatia. He uh, was saying that the Ph.D. students he graduated with, there were, of all the subjects, that, they, that, that because when they, Ph.D. graduates are introduced, they're, they, you have a quick summary of what they studied. And he said it was just kind of really heartbreaking to hear what they studied. They were studying all these esoteric, irrelevant, micro tiny realities that seem completely disconnected from the church and life and reality. What really matters? And because they have to find something new. To be a PhD student, you've got to say something new. Well, if you're always trying to find something new, you've got to keep going out there and out to the oblivion to find something new. And he was talking about he got to study. Uh, Chris did his doctoral work on the, uh, the nature of Christ. He, he got a degree in counseling and did it on the nature of the, hum, the humanity of Christ and talked about his soul, which was says incredibly enriching to his life. He preached on that a while back. You remember the last time Chris preached, some of you may remember, he preached from Hebrews on the, the humanity of Christ. Well, what I'm saying is when theologians are digging into this kind of thing, it is the most relevant It's not irrelevant. It is the most relevant thing. Who Jesus is, is everything. And so the theological hair splitting that's going on here in this document is a matter of eternal life and death. Does that make sense? It's not like they're they're just theorizing. No, they're digging in the Scriptures, dealing with real heresy. And this means... When the church deals with heresy, and if we have to deal with that ourselves in our local body, if that comes up, we need to pray that we will have the urgency to deal with that which God wants us to deal with the way He wants us to deal with it, to dig into the Scriptures, to find the truth, and to stand on the truth. And this is what happens in the church. So we have to, you know, beware of that spirit of, well, just let's just all get along. Yeah, we, we, we want to work hard to all get along. We know the Lord, he, they know us by our love. But true love flows out of truth. It doesn't flow out of error and pretension. Truth in the gospel is what 
love flows from. And if the gospel is compromised, there is no love. There's just a sham, a show. And so these guys were, were just really going after this issue. So he's, we'll move on down here. Um, the difference of the natures. You see where we just finished two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis. That's where the, that's where the phrase hypostatic union comes. Concurring. They happen together. They exist together. Not as though he was parted or divided into two persons, but one in the selfsame Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. Even as from the beginning the prophets have taught concerning him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself hath taught us, and as the symbol of the fathers hath handed down to us. So that's the statement of the Council of Chalcedon. And it, you know, meditating on this to understand that he is of the same substance with us. And he is of, at the same time of the same substance as the Father. Full deity in full humanity. I mean, that, that is mind blowing. But that is what the Bible teaches. And it, in fairness to the heretics, it does seem too good to be true. The mystery is truly incomprehensible. You can never fully understand that. We will never fully understand what Christ has done for us, who He is. We will marvel and glory in it through all eternity. And we will know more and more and more forever and ever and ever and still not know the half of it. But that He would come all the way down to experience full humanity live the life that he lived, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As the author of Hebrews said, made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. I love that, how he leads there. Made like us in all things so that he might, he could have said so that he might save us. And he has already said that. But he said, so that he might be a merciful, faithful high priest. But he starts with merciful. I mean, the motive of God, he's saying, in coming all the way down to us was his, his loving kindness. His incredible compassion is what motivated him to take on full humanity. That he would leave the glory of heaven and come down to save us and he entered into our full existence so that we would find in him, we would find in Christ an understanding Savior who understands everything you're going through. Everything that you could ever face, he personally has 
under, understands it from experience. He was made like us in all things. He was tempted in every way. He says in chapter 4, tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, so that he can sympathize with you in your weakness. He can feel what you feel in every circumstance you find yourself. God can feel what you feel. Can, it, that's just mind-blowing. God, who's infinite in power and glory, has stooped all the way down to feel everything that you could ever feel in the most horrible moment you could find yourself. No matter where you could be, no matter how torturous the experience, no matter how painful the loss, no matter how puzzling the, the betrayal, no matter what you experience, you have a Savior. You say, there's nobody that understands what I'm going through. There's nobody in my life that understands what I'm going through. Likely. Probably so. But not so if you look to Jesus. When you go to Jesus, you have someone who understands exactly what you're going through, has been there. In His full humanity, He went through it and worse. Whatever you and I have experienced, He's experienced worse. More betrayal, more hatred, more mockery, more violence, more cruelty. No one's experienced more than Jesus. And that's what we have in the gospel. We have that, and that precious truth is everything. It means He can save you because He's taken on all your humanity. But not only can He save you eternally by, by, by bringing you to heaven, bringing many sons to glory, He can save you in the moment that you're in, wherever you find yourself. He can join with you. That's what Peter was saying when he said he bore in, in his own body our, 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 our sins on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's talking about sanctification. He experienced everything that we've experienced. He bore our sin so that He can then be our righteousness in the moment. And He doesn't just come to give you righteousness in an imp a dispassionate way. So we feel sometimes feel like that. I, here I am about to sin, and Lord, I need Your grace to help me not to sin. I don't want to grumble and complain in the circumstances. I want to be faithful. And so, Lord, give me your, your righteousness. And so He does that, and the cross does that. But what this is saying is, not only does that happen, but He comes and He understands the turmoil in your soul at the moment. He comes compassionately to you. He doesn't come just to fix you. He comes to feel with you, to come right where you are, because He loves you and He's experienced what you experience. That's the glory of our Savior. And that's what this, this doctrine was protecting. This is what the Bible teaches. And people, and they're using their human reason and appealing to the, the, the pride of man, were emptying the gospel of this precious truth. This is why you can see why men contended for these kinds of things with their own blood. What matters more than that? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we worship and honor you. We stand in awe of you. Triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfect 
power and glory, united in purpose, existing in an eternal communion of love. Lord Jesus, we worship you that you have, as the divine Son, have taken on our humanity with all the cost. with more cost than we can even begin to fathom. Thank you for being made like us in every way except sin. Thank you for experiencing everything we experience. Thank you for living as true man in dependence upon the Father and Holy Spirit to live your life. and yet remaining God in one person. Thank you for being willing to go to the cross, to be esteemed a sinner and bearing all the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And thank you for being rejected in our place. And Lord, we say with the... uh, the tax collector, be propitious toward us. Look at the sacrifice and have mercy on us. And Lord Jesus, may we always glory in nothing but the cross. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.